Great. Well, you have in the, um, in the conference uh, papers a little booklet that I was asked to put together on um, episcopacy uh, and evangelicals and their bishops. Um, I'm not imagining that everybody here has read and digested all of the details in that already, though I, I hope some of you have. At least there'll be a short test later uh, on all the details in the footnotes um, and uh, there'll be prizes that Roz, I'm sure, will want to give out. But seriously, what I propose to do now is not just to repeat the things that I've said in the booklet. Uh, what I do in there, for those who haven't read it yet, is provide a biblical justification for bishops and episcopacy. I have a look at what Anglicans have traditionally said about the role of episcopacy in how we live out the Christian faith in this country. I also look at some of the challenges to that and think about a few of the ways in which evangelicals have dealt with the difficulties. Because there are difficulties in the Church of England right now, aren't there? There are difficulties. Let's not mince our words. I'm not going to mince my words this afternoon. I'm a northerner. I grew up not far from here in Sale. So I'm not going to mince my words. Sorry. Which, which may upset some people. Um, <laughs> along with the water on that table. Like none of us here, I imagine, are comfortable in the Church of England right now. Are we? Yes, as a group, we're wanting to stay and fight valiantly against the world, the flesh and the devil and fight for the gospel, remaining in the established church for the sake of the people in it and as a witness to our nation. But it is not exactly a comfortable place to be right now for conservative evangelicals, is it? We are not in a complacent mood as we stay. We are not content with how things are in the status quo. We're profoundly uneasy with it and deeply concerned about the trajectory that our church is on. For a start, I sense that in general, we distrust the ability of the central organs in the Church of England to act fairly with regard to us. As mostly complementarian, conservative evangelicals here, we feel alienated from things. Caroline spoke about that earlier this morning, very eloquently. Alienated from things. And we're not confident about getting a fair go or a fair hearing from bishops and archbishops and archdeacons and so on, in general, because of their theology, perhaps, or their practice, or from our long experience, but also, rightly or wrongly, because this is what we have been led to expect by the standard rhetoric from our leaders over the past few decades. Maybe we're too cynical and suspicious about the episcopate. We don't trust the bishops. But let's think about why. Now, I want us to have a sort of professional conversation about this, not a personal one. So none of the things I'm going to say are personal attacks on, on people. This is a professional, grown-up conversation about the Church of England. Why do we distrust the bishops? Well, in no particular order, we distrust them, firstly, because of their dodgy teaching. Rod can use words like problematic. I'm just going to say dodgy. They're dodgy teaching. When we hear 
the Bishop of Buckingham on TV attacking evangelical doctrine and saying that penal substitutionary atonement leads to abuse inevitably. Or when we read Jane Ozan and the Bishop of Liverpool's tweets supporting Jane Ozan and other heretics in their campaigns to undermine the church's biblical doctrine. Or when we hear even supposedly evangelical bishops saying, oh, we don't have any complementarians in our diocese and we're quite happy about that. It's hard to think that we have, you know, lots of friends on the bench of bishops, isn't it, who love and cherish our contribution to the wider church. So we distrust the bishops because of their dodgy teaching. Second, maybe we distrust the bishops because of their dodgy behaviour as well. Maybe it's the way many of them tweet against the established doctrine and agreed position of the church on marriage and sexuality and feel free to tell the world how awful it all is and how sorry they are for having to be part of an orthodox church. Maybe it's Bishop Peter Ball and his evil activities of child abuse and the cover-ups aided and abetted by other bishops which ensued after that. Maybe it's the way some of them can't even stop themselves getting drunk, getting into other people's cars and throwing their toys around in the back of the car. I'm the Bishop of Southwark. It's what I do. When we wouldn't allow some bishops to even teach in our Sunday school, it is hard to look to them as models of Christ-like holiness or to think of them as people who teach the truth which accords with godliness. Third, we have a hard time with our bishops because of their dodgy discipline. Their dodgy discipline. It's a strain, even for the most charitable amongst us, when bishops routinely allow heresy or bad behaviour or rainbow flags or play-acting same-sex marriage liturgies to go unchallenged. There are some instances where discipline has held and people who have thumbed their noses up at the truth have been denied appointments or preferments. That's good. But still, too much, too much still goes by with the seeming tacit encouragement from the bench of bishops. There's also, fourthly, false discipline. False discipline. So when a bishop threatens a faithful clergyman with a clergy discipline measure because he's attempted to discipline, uh, to distance himself and his congregation from the teaching and lifestyle of the openly gay and civil partnered archdeacon, who himself goes unpunished and undisciplined and unrepentant in his activity of trying to overturn and subvert the church's teaching on sexuality, well, then it's hard to feel that discipline's being properly applied, isn't it? Surely the archdeacon should be disciplined, not the man who's standing by the church's doctrine. Fifthly, let's be candid. It is hard not to be wary, at least, of the increasing number of women bishops, too. Sometimes because of the same things that I've already mentioned. 
Though some of the women bishops are not aggressively pushing a revisionist line on sexuality, as we know, some are on the side of the angels when it comes to the issues of the day. But, you know, we oppose their consecration as bishops. And so maybe we fear, rightly or wrongly, that they may be prejudiced against us. It's difficult to feel otherwise, isn't it? When the promises made to us as a constituency as far back as the 1990s that there would be no future discrimination against conservative evangelicals as candidates for the episcopates and General Synod overwhelmingly passed a motion to endorse a report saying positive steps should be taken to put conservative evangelicals into purple shirts. And yet, apart from the very special and very circumscribed and limited example of Rod here, we still don't have a single suffragan, let alone a diocesan bishop. On top of all this, we worry that the bishops are really too busy with ephemeral matters and have too many restrictions and limitations put on their ability to do the core things that they're meant to do. So they're too busy with resource management and paperwork to be thinking about the battle between truth and error. The main reason we actually have bishops, as I say in that paper, the reason we've got bishops is to protect our congregations. Spiritual safeguarding, that's what they're there for, spiritual safeguarding, to protect the congregations in our dioceses from false teaching through word and prayer, through ordinations, through appointments, and through discipline, church discipline. Now, I know it must be very difficult, if not impossible, to be a bishop with all that responsibility for protecting the church from false teaching, but with no real authority to actually do so in practice, apparently. If you've ever had a job where you've had huge amounts of responsibility and expectation, but no actual real authority to enact change, then you'll know how that feels. But I guess we're also sometimes just a little bit cynical about all of this when it comes to the bishops and think, well, maybe they do actually enjoy all of that other stuff that they do, you know, the palaces, the places in the Lords, the privileges, the prestige and so on. And maybe they're not actually too bothered about fighting valiantly against the world, the press and the devil. Some of them are, but others seem keener on being a focus for unity with heretics and schismatics and apostates. Keener on that than they are on protecting us from the gangrenous false teaching that is around at the moment. Why don't we hear more from them on such subjects? Why? Why are they not the people that we go to naturally to ask for advice on these spiritual matters. Now, I know that these are strong words. Quite nervous saying some of them, and you haven't heard half of it yet. But aren't these sort of things warranted in our current situation, these things that I'm saying? Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian, uh, sort of summed up the standard position of the church through the ages when he said that if somebody denies the Trinity or 
if they argue that sex outside of marriage is not a sin, then they are a heretic. A heretic. Yet today, in our church, it is repeatedly said, and I quote, clergy are fully entitled to argue for a change in that teaching. See, for example, the recent pastoral statement on civil partnerships for opposite-sex couples. No! No, clergy should not be entitled to argue for a change in orthodox biblical teaching. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, which they actually promised at their ordination to uphold. They are not entitled to argue against it. You know, I'd like to see the Bishop of Buckingham and the Bishop of Liverpool look Aquinas and Athanasius in the eye and defend themselves on that. Uh, I say all these things to myself as well. You know, I had a clause added to my own contract when I became director of church society. They gave me a contract, a draft one. I said, you've got to add something to that. I said, I want you to add it so that if my theological views are no longer in accord with the 39 articles, or if my behaviour is unacceptable for a minister, then I can be dismissed for gross misconduct. Though I hope if it ever does come to that, that I will do the decent and honourable thing and resign first. And I hope that one day, whoever succeeds me as director of church society one day, will be bound by those same rules. Because as a member of church society, I want it to be led by someone who believes what they say, believes what they profess to believe, and lives it out in their own life. And I want them to be accountable, as I am, to an elected council who can fire them if needs be. And also to be accountable to a public declaration and profession of faith, a public standard of faith. Now, if that's the case for the director of church society, how much more should we be expecting that kind of thing from the ministers in our churches, which is a much more important job on the front line of the battle? The bishops in our church ought to be enforcing that. That's what they're there for. How much more should we be expecting such teaching and practice from the bishops themselves? You know, people make oaths and promises at their ordination. But do we expect them to stand by them anymore? As Augustus Toplady said in the 18th century, were the same insincerity and prevarications allowed of in the secular affairs of common life, which too often obtain in religious transactions, such as ordination vows, all social connections would quickly be at an end, and every band by which mankind are tied to each other would vanish like a wreath of smoke. And yet too often we wink at the crossed fingers behind the ordinand's back or the connived slipperiness and evasion of some bishops who can't even remember how many articles there are or when they last read them or preached the doctrine contained in them publicly and clearly. So, brothers and sisters, for all these reasons, rightly or wrongly, I may be wrong, we find it hard to trust our bishops. 
There are good biblical warrants for episcopacy as a system, you know, governing the church by bishops. But in practice, we're struggling with it. Indeed, many have thrown out the baby of episcopacy with the dirty bathwater of current episcopal credibility. And yet, we need episcopacy. We need episcopacy. That, that's the difficult thing about all this. It's precisely because of the moral and doctrinal confusion in our day that we need bishops to be doing what bishops are meant to do. Now, I know that no system of church polity is perfect. There are heretics amongst the Congregationalists and amongst the Presbyterians and amongst the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox too, yes. No system of governance in and of itself can save. But if we had episcopacy, the kind of episcopacy I talk about in that booklet, the kind of episcopacy that is envisaged in the pastoral epistles and the Book of Common Prayer, it would be a huge help to us now, wouldn't it? Because we must assume, us, here in this room today, we must assume that some of us will go astray doctrinally or morally. We must assume that. Acts chapter 20 tells us it will happen. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, from amongst your own number people will arise to preach the false teaching and drag people away. So, you know, if heresy, schism and apostasy could arise from the eldership that was trained and ordained by the Apostle Paul himself, then we would be fools not to expect the same from those who've been trained by Cornhill and Oak Hill and Wycliffe and Ridley and St. Melitus. Wouldn't we? It could be heresy and false teaching. It could be bullying or abuse of various kinds. Moral lapses, lewd comments to women in the street, naked pictures being sent by social media, systemic personal failings, people walking away from their wives and their ministries and the faith. These things will happen. Let's be frank about it. These things have happened just in the last year amongst us, amongst our people, conservative evangelicals in the Church of England. I say this with deep sadness and with daily lamentation and a a lingering daily sense of shame, if I'm honest. I mean, when church society vicars and people in church society churches do those things which they do. I feel that. We all feel it, don't we? When we hear about it. Feel shame. In and of ourselves, without the grace of Christ, we are a sickening sight in the eyes of God and a standing reminder of what Article 9 of the 39 Articles says about original sin, that it remains... Yes, even in those who are regenerate, even amongst conservative evangelicals. 
Now, how do we feel now about how we, sh- we should be dealt with if that's us in the future? How do you think you ought to be dealt with if, if that does happen to you? If you fall, or one of us falls in such a public way, what would we do? What would we do, actually, if it, if it was one of us? Just search your heart for a minute. What would you do if you committed one of those sins? Wouldn't you probably be at least tempted to denigrate the authority of those who are able to restrain and censor you so that you can continue to operate with impunity? Wouldn't you be tempted to do that? That is so often how sin works when the Spirit does not bring true contrition and repentance. We try to cover up and hide or we attack the people who could find us out. That's precisely why we need properly constituted biblical authority over us. We need a reformed and renewed episcopate. But we live in a very anti-authority culture, don't we, out there? Very anti-authority, the world around us. And that's come into this room too. We've accepted that amongst ourselves as well. In fact, we've used it to our own advantage on many occasions, haven't we? Just like everybody else. We have a society which is snobbish and sneering about the past and dismisses it. And we've bought into that too, as evangelicals, as a community. Our culture around us is dismissive of in-depth training and experts. It turns superficial pundits into its thought leaders, and it elects machismo for its leaders. Our world right now privileges blustering strongmen of conviction and extreme views on the right and on the left, those who can really show it to the establishment elites. That's what's going on in the world around us. And we bought into that too that very same zeitgeist, and we cheer for the same things in our leaders within the church. We mimic the fashionable poses of those around us or play to the crowd of our admiring peers like schoolboys giggling about what they can get away with rather than imitating Jesus and his apostles. I mean, what are our implicit leadership structures as conservative evangelicals because we don't implicitly look to bishops do we that's not our default mode orthodox bishops else orthodox anglicans elsewhere in the world do look to their bishops for their implicit leadership and and we often have in the past as well but nowadays there's a tendency amongst us to self-reliance rather than looking for authority. We admire rugged individualists and we lionise gentlemen amateurs. We sometimes call narcissists prophets and we think that they are courageous. We evangelicals really have a sort of pseudo-prosperity gospel that bows to the big, the shiny and successful. 
but only to a certain type of shiny and successful, of course. Of course, we look to certain strategic places for leadership from those traditionally born to rule. We wouldn't defer to a lower middle class vicar of a thousand strong congregation in Sunderland the way that we would if his class or his location were different. Oh, that we had a thousand strong church in Sunderland. So how on earth, if this is true, I mean, how on earth can we create a culture amongst us that will change this? How can we foster a culture which accepts connectionalism between us, connections, that rather than a sort of rugged isolationist congregationalism where we stay in our little ghettos? How can we learn to embody amongst ourselves here biblical, Anglican, patterns of authority. I mean, that kind of stuff sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Connectionalism, authority, those are dangerous things to be advocating right now. I mean, don't get the bishops involved in everything. We don't want to be listening to them and connecting with them deliberately. I mean, they're all dodgy. Lee's just told us six reasons why they're all dodgy. Don't let them in. Well, maybe, but is it not equally if not more dangerous, to allow unrestrained hyper-congregationalism, the sort of eccentric teaching, bullying, abuse of various kinds, and the toxic cultures that have been created by people who are not team players. I mean, if our local church is everything, then there's nowhere that you can go. There's nowhere that you can go for help against an abusive, bullying minister except to leave. If, if they hold all the cards and all the key people have been appointed and are loyal to him, then what can you do? Because we don't have pure congregationalism in our networks, even if we think we do sometimes. Real congregationalism includes restraint from below, so to speak, upon the minister, and a break on him. Our congregations should have that protection from their bishops. But when we, the ministers, push the bishops out of the Anglican picture, there ends up being no one left to restrain errant ministers. Which could be us. We, we complain about monarchical bishops and become monarchical presbyters. Now, uh, you know, I'm, I may be overstating things. Maybe. I will forgive me if I do that. It's the afternoon session. I want to stop you falling asleep. And I want to provoke us to think about these things. So if I've overstated things, uh, I don't want to offend. I want us to get talking about this stuff. If I'm even half right about the diagnosis that I've just given, about where we're at, we have a problem. Because if we suddenly did have good bishops and a reformed episcopate, would we even accept it? Would we know how to even relate to it? Would we want to? We've had no experience of that for a long time. 
we're accustomed to the way things are. I wonder if we rather crave the independence we sometimes have and enjoy being able to always blame the higher-ups for all the problems in the church. Now, you know, there are big, strategic, prestigious churches with strong, worthy leaders. They can enjoy independence from their dioceses and they can do their own thing. So maybe we should all strive for that kind of independence, that kind of platform. But Corinthian leadership is not what we need. It doesn't produce a biblical form of oversight for the rest of us. Oversight that's in touch with the pastoral and other realities on the ground in ordinary places. Because it doesn't understand them. Even if it does occasionally throw money at speculative investments beyond its parish boundaries in sort of virtue signalling operations that may or may not last a few years. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions on all of this. What would it look like if our congregations were the ones gathering teachers to suit what their itching ears need to hear? What would we do in that situation? What if we're the ones gathering teachers to suit what we want to hear all the time? What would we do? We'd resist all of this stuff. We'd resist connectionalism. We'd resist Episcopal authority because that's the kind of thing that would tell us things we don't want to hear about ourselves and about the world. Our congregations in that situation would only ever get teaching that pleased them and that never challenged them. Whereas what we need is to hear from someone who's not only answerable to the local church, but is accountable to another outside of the congregation and to a public standard of faith and practice. Think about it biblically. The legalism in Galatia and the license that Jude talks about at the end of the Bible both needed somebody from outside of the local situation to bring them back into line with apostolic faith. Because false teaching is facilitated by the absence of ministry from outside the local parish. False teaching and harmful cultures are fostered by the elevation of charismatic and charming leaders into unchallenged cult-like status. If you want to know if you have such a situation, if you want to know who rules you, ask who you're not allowed to criticise or challenge in public. What I'm saying is, to, to lay people here, somebody needs to be able to get rid of your vicar if he goes dodgy. And ministers, fellow ministers, someone needs to be able to get rid of us, don't they? If, if we go that way as well. Real leadership is accountable as well as consensual. And that, that goes for in a local church, in a network, and in a denomination. 
if your leader has taught you never to trust outside people, only him, then he has taught you to kneel and to bow. Especially where you, as a congregation, don't actually have the powers of a real congregationalist church. Evangelicals like us are often too deferential to success and to status to resist these things. We collude in our own subjugation to unbiblical, un-Anglican structures of power without ever having a clear sense of what we will do if the one we allow to lead turns out to be a rogue. It's not disloyal to talk like this. It's not disloyal to the gospel to ask questions of those who claim to act in our name or put themselves in the chair as our leaders. But sections of our constituency are led informally and almost unconsciously, I think, by what Mike Ovey used to call a non-transparent, somewhat unself-aware, self-perpetuating oligarchy. That could never end badly, could it? We need to challenge it. And we need to look for a more biblical, accountable, consensual leadership. We need that amongst ourselves if we ever hope to have it in the Church of England as a whole. So as I begin to wrap up, we are currently experiencing the marginalisation of conservative evangelicals in the national church. This is happening through continual, deniable, low-level attrition. The outward rhetoric is all about mutual flourishing and how we're all good Anglicans together. But on the ground, in practice, at every level, we see how that works. We see it. We have no church society bishops except Rod and no certainty, no certainty that when uh, Rod retires or drops dead with exhaustion because of all that he's doing for us, we have no guarantee that he will be replaced without drops of blood, sweat and tears being shed by us collectively to make sure that happens. It's great to have a London plan. It's great that that's being adopted in Oxford, a bit in Southwark, maybe here and there. But that's what, half a dozen places? There are 40-odd dioceses. It's not sure that this is going to be perpetuated and carry on. It is going to take the new Bishop of Maidstone in three, four years' time at least a year or two to get up and running, being an assistant bishop again in all these dioceses. This has been deliberately designed, and it's very clever. It's very clever. It keeps us on our knees begging to be let in the door and have a seat at the table all the time. And they're hoping we will just die out and go away. We may just then get on with things at the local level and we'll do all right there for a bit because we're all about the word and evangelism and building people up in their faith and reaching, building and sending. But hands up anybody here who feels like they're truly flourishing in the life and structures of the Church of England. Seriously. Who here feels, hands up, if you believe the promises that they want us to? 
bishops are meant to ensure the supremacy of God's word in the congregations they serve and in the denomination as a whole. We must covenant together, brothers and sisters, we must covenant together to accept Rod's oversight for that purpose. We must give up some of our power and accept his episcopacy. Not as a nice chap, which he is, but we can bust in every now and again and do a confirmation or two, and not just as a sort of church consultant that we can ask advice from and ignore it if we don't like it. We must covenant together to accept episcopacy, oversight from Rod, and get to learn for ourselves what that means and what it looks like and how it feels. I mean, if we can't do that with Rod, I'm not sure what kind of bishop we're waiting for. Sometimes I think, you know, when we reluctantly admit that we do need a bishop of some sort, what we really want in our heart of hearts is one who's at least 5,000 miles away most of the time so that he can be safely ignored and have no real authority over us. Or maybe, maybe we'd, we'd like to have someone who is our own personal bishop, you know, like our own personal Jesus, somebody who can reinforce and legitimate all the things that we're doing already, but not really challenge us or have a say in what we do. And how we work. We've got to stop looking for that kind of oversight from places that it is never really going to come. It is also not going to come from the failed social experiments and top-down strategies of the last 100 years, which is what's got us into this current state of toxicity and marginalisation and ineffectiveness in the first place. You know... Keep your head down in the parish. Don't engage outside of it. And look to the good chaps to protect us by reaching the upper echelons. That hasn't worked, has it? And until we recognise these things about ourselves and get starting to talk about them amongst ourselves, there is little hope for us to be a movement that will reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. And all we're going to end up doing is evangelising and training people who end up, longer term, either serving in the FIEC or worshipping under liberal vicars when we secede. Because those people that we don't like as bishops are still bishops. They do hold power over us legally, whether we like it or not. Even if we pretend we, you know, that they don't have this authority because we define things differently in our heads or we say otherwise in our sermons. <laughs> that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. The bishops still have power in an episcopally governed church. When you move to another church or to glory, they have power in your congregation. Not all the power, there's some good checks and balances in our system, particularly with patrons like church society, but they have significant power. Even if you've told your congregation that they don't, they do. When I met uh, recently with the, um, uh, the Secretary General of the Archbishop's Council, uh, William Nye, 
uh, he asked me, you know, why, why don't you conservative evangelicals play with other people in the church much? Uh, why don't you get involved with the, uh, the central policies and programs that, that he's trying to run? And I spoke with him for about two hours on how marginalised and alienated we feel and how promises to involve us in the episcopacy and leadership of the church have never been kept. And hence we don't often feel that they are credible now or worth putting our time and our hope in. The Church of England must do far better as far as the inclusion of its conservative evangelical minority is concerned. Show me the bishops. Show me the bishops. But we also, we also must do better as a constituency at leading and governing ourselves. At least, I think we should at least now begin to have conversations amongst ourselves about this. And I hope that's what we'll do today and into the future. Let's just bow our heads. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do his will working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.